1: Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. King coal is on the rocks. A few years ago, it accounted for more than half of electricity in America. Today, it's about one-third. Cheap, abundant natural gas is undercutting coal in the marketplace, and regulations on mercury and carbon pollution are catching up with the real costs of burning this dirtiest of fossil fuels. Coal plants and mines are being shut down. Many miners are retiring, and new ones are not being hired. A recent article in Business Week called this Coal's Darkest Hour. Overseas, it's a brighter story. China's imports of the Black Rock are soaring, and a recent report by the world's foremost energy authority said coal will challenge oil as the world's premier source of energy in less than five years. American coal companies and railroads want to get in on that action by building new ports in Oregon and Washington to export coal from Wyoming. Advocates say that will create jobs and economic growth. Opponents say that it's a foolish investment in dirty energy that will hurt human health and further disrupt the climate. Over the next hour, we'll discuss coal, natural gas, and powering America's future with our audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. And joining us, we are pleased to have experts, three experts. Trevor Hauser is a, with the Rhodium Group, a consulting group in New York and a visiting fellow with the Peterson Institute. Ross McFarlane is a senior advisor with Climate Solutions, an environmental group based in Seattle. And Bruce Nillis, a senior director of the Beyond Coal campaign at the Sierra Club. Please welcome them to Climate One. <laughs> Uh, before we begin, I should mention that we invited industry voices to join us here today uh, from the American Coalition for Clean Coal Electricity and the Northwest Coalition for Jobs and Exports. However, they did not send anyone to participate. So, uh, Bruce Nillis, let's begin with you. You head up a campaign that is aimed at killing king coal. Uh, How is that campaign going? What have you accomplished in the last few years?
2: Okay. So 2012 was our best year by far, um, The reason we care about coal is, we at the Sierra Club have identified global warming and eventing climate chaos as our number one priority. And coal is the number one culprit. If you look at the science of Dr. Jim Hansen and others, he basically says, we have to be off coal in less than two decades. No later than 2030, we need to have coal down to zero. So we set out 10 years ago to do two big things and added a third. Uh, One was to stop the construction of new coal plants. And I'm proud to say and delighted to say that after 10 years, we've stopped 90% of the new projects and not a single new coal plant has broken ground since 2008. So the pipeline of new coal is essentially over in the United States. We have then turned our attention two years ago to how do we retire and replace the existing fleet with clean energy. And so that's been the bulk of our work uh, going forward. And this week we're going to be celebrating that uh, almost uh, one-sixth of the coal fleet, about 50,000 megawatts of coal in the United States, is either retired or retiring in the next few years. Um, and it's being done literally community by community, Uh, working with the broad swath of Sierra Club activists uh, and leaders across the country and a whole bunch of allies who are saying, Congress is not leading, so we're going to act at the local level. And so literally shutting coal plant by coal plant down across the country and replacing with our vision, which was a mix of energy efficiency, wind, and solar.
1: Trevor Hauser, coal is definitely down, but has it been Texas oil men or Texas natural gas men, or has it been the Obama administration, or has it been the Sierra Club that's really been driving that?
0: Yeah, so with... All due respect to Bruce and the great work that Sierra Club does, I think he might have to share that podium with uh, wildcatting oil and gas developers in uh, Texas. Uh, the I'm not sure, d-
2: Bruce, how you feel about that, but... Uh, it's a temporary glitch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, as you said in the lead, uh, coal accounted for about 50% of uh, the generation mix in, uh, for most of the past three decades, actually. And starting a couple years ago, that began to drop dramatically down to a low of 33% in April of this year of U.S. power generation. That tracks exactly with the decline in natural gas prices uh, over the same period of time. So in wholesale markets where power generators compete to sell to customers, you see generators turning on or off, coal generators turning on or off, natural gas generators turning on or off, depending on what they call uh, the dark spread, which is the price difference between coal and natural gas. And so when we talk to traders, uh, in the electricity markets, they're paying far more attention to the price of natural gas than they are to environmental regulations at this particular moment. Uh, over the past couple months, coals climbed back a little bit because natural gas prices have gone up. So in September, coal's share of U.S. power generation was back at 39 percent from 33 percent in April because natural gas prices have strengthened a little bit.
1: But isn't there a policy dimension that sort of if you're a coal company or a utility looking at the future of coal, you're going to place big bets, don't you have to think about the regulatory risk and the uncertainty, the kind of pressure that the Sierra Club and others are putting on, there is a cloud over coal?
0: That's absolutely true for new generation, right? So when people are thinking about building a new coal-fired power plant, which is going to be a 30-year asset, then you really have to think what's legislation going to look like in the next 30 years, and their climate is a serious concern. Uh, it's also going to matter on the retirement side that Bruce was talking about. So the economics of natural gas have led to less generation from coal-fired power plants. But most of those plants haven't yet shut down. They're still available to be turned back on if those economics change. Uh, what regulation from the federal government, what environmental campaigns, uh, the impact that they'll have on that existing generation is to force closure of plants that – recently have stopped producing just for economic reasons.
2: Well, it's not actually quite true because we do a lot of work in places like Kentucky where there's a giant coal plant, 800 megawatts by any measure, fairly efficient coal plants built in the uh, 60s. Through environmental regulations that we have been very um, engaged to push and support at the federal level, that plant has to decide, do we put on a billion-dollar scrubber to finally clean up our act decades late, or do we retire? And so we have been in the Public Service Commission proceedings saying, it makes no economic sense to put a scrubber on to raise rates for ratepayers in Eastern Kentucky by 30 percent. you're much better off retiring that coal plant over the next couple of years and replacing it with a mix of clean energy. So those environmental regulations, and if you think about what was leading up to the election, we had a very vigorous discussion. And for the very first time the coal industry took off the gloves and went after Obama hard with his war on coal, precisely because as he has been finally closing the loopholes, the regulatory loopholes for coal, Price of coal is going up. Yes, the price of gas has been coming down. So is wind and solar. But the cost of coal is going up because we're finally internalizing the cost of coal, and that's what's different today than two, three years ago.
1: Let's get the export uh, angle in here with Ross McFarlane. You're in Seattle. Uh, there is a move to export coal. That's a good thing if you're the coal industry. What, what's the opposition up in the Northwest? Well,
3: Climate Solutions, it, you know, has always shared the kind of concerns that that Bruce was talking about. Coal is the dirtiest fossil fuel by far. We were working on creating new energy solutions, energy efficiency, renewables, all those things, and been successful in our part of the country in getting the only two coal-fired power plants in Oregon and Washington onto shutdown schedules, major accomplishments. And then we discovered about two years ago that the coal industry had identified their key strategic initiative as their markets were falling off a cliff in the United States, their goal was to get coal that we owned in the Powder River Basin onto trains, onto ships, get it to China. And we had to make a decision as Climate Solutions. We're primarily about yes, we're about accelerating new solutions. But we had to decide: are we going to focus on those? If it's just going to be a, a hood ornament on a giant growth of a big gleaming MV or a Humvee um, of building this new fossil fuel infrastructure, which is going to significantly impact local communities and is going to directly impact the climate, impact ocean acidification, impact all these other issues which are caused directly by burning the vast reservoirs of carbon. What we've been amazed by is how prominent this issue has become, how much support we've been able to grow. Um, We've obviously been involved in lots of campaigns along with our partner organizations like the Sierra Club And it has been like nothing that we've ever seen with thousands of people showing out in very small communities as well as in places like Seattle, talking about very localized concerns, including the issues around shipping the coal through communities, dominating the use of the rail and shipping infrastructure, but also how that ties in to our community's desire to chart a new energy future to help Areas like Asia develop a new energy future as opposed to investing huge amounts in the technologies of the past.
1: Suppose you're successful in blocking some of these ports in Washington and, and Oregon. I think you call it the thin blue line of, of California, Oregon, and Washington. Uh, those exports then may just go to Canada. They may go to the Gulf Coast where uh, states are willing to export fossil fuels and happy to have dr- offshore drilling. Uh, I mean, you may not have any impact at all.
3: They're fighting it everywhere. I mean, we're fighting it everywhere. And um, but it's a lot we,
1: easier to fight in Seattle than it is Louisiana. That, right?
3: I, mean, I mean, I would I would say in uh, there's also significant infrastructure constraints. British Columbia, for example, has been exporting coal, but primarily what's called metallurgical coal, which is much higher value and is mined locally in British Columbia. Um, there are proposals to get this thermal coal that is, is lower value from the United States in larger amounts there. There are significant problems, infrastructure challenges, in ramping that up anywhere near as much as the coal companies want. And there's a hugely growing local opposition, including the kind of First Nations uh, groups which are very powerful there and are working closely with the groups that are working in the Northwest. Uh, Shipping it off other coasts uh, probably just doesn't make economic sense to fuel the area that we're most concerned about, which is the growing Asian economies.
1: Trevor Hauser, do you agree about the, that the cost? That, that, that the, won't that coal find a market somewhere?
0: Uh, I, so there's a question about how competitive U.S. coal is in Asia, and that's not entirely clear. There's points over the past decade where had there been a rail link between Wyoming and the West Coast – that that coal would have been competitive, and there's been points where it wasn't competitive. Uh, To me, the interesting question is, you know, over the next two decades, if we build that coal export infrastructure, uh, from a climate standpoint, uh, how much will that change the price of coal in Asia, and how much will that increase Asian coal demand? So let's say we're exporting 100 million tons of coal. It certainly is not true that that will increase Chinese consumption 100 million tons. Right? So by
1: increasing the supply, we could reduce the price of coal,
0: adding more to
1: the market. That's the
0: question. So so if you're trying to figure out just how much will increase emissions uh, for uh, for, uh, U.S. coal exports uh, to Asia, uh, then you have to figure out how much it changes the price. So let me use an example. If I go to a soda machine, you know, every day at lunch, and I buy a Coke, and the Coke costs a dollar. Right? And then one day I decide to uh, try the Pepsi out. Pepsi costs 90 cents. It gets introduced into the vending machine, right? I have a 10 cent cost savings. Is that 10 cent cost savings gonna make me buy two Pepsis or am I just gonna stick with the one Pepsi, right? And pocket the 10 cents and use it for something else. At some level, I'm going to buy two Pepsis, except I live in New York, and we now have laws that are – or if Bloomberg gets its way, we we'll laws that will prevent me from buying multiple Pepsi's. You can Good. buy the little uh, Pepsi
1: bottles. It's not the big ones. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh,
0: but, but that's a question from an economist standpoint, is how much will it actually increase demand versus just changing the price and Chinese power plants pocketing some of the money. That's important from a climate standpoint because uh, it – determines how much emissions will increase. And climate's not the only environmental issue that we're concerned about here. I mean, one of the reasons that uh, Chinese uh, coal companies and power companies are interested in Powder River Basin coal, the coal that's produced in Wyoming, is because that has a very low sulfur content, right? That's why it got developed in the U.S. When we passed the Clean Air Act, uh, that led to a significant increase in Wyoming coal production because it had lower sulfur than the coal that was produced in, the, in Appalachia. Uh, in China, so I used to work at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, and they sent me to do all the things that nobody wanted to do, like go down coal mines and trips around oil and gas fields. Uh, And one of my jobs was to write the air quality reporting cable that went back to Washington. It turns out that that's one of the closest watch cables that leaves the embassy because at the time when I was working there, it determined the hardship pay that U.S. Embassy staff got, which at that point was comparable to the hardship pay you got for working in Baghdad in the green zone. That was the risk to life and limb that air in Beijing posed, right? And a lot of that is sulfur, sulfur dioxide and uh and a lot of that sulfur blows to the west coast of the US actually so between 10 and 15% of the sulfur in California comes from China so there are local environmental benefits if China is able to switch from high sulfur coals that it currently consumes to low sulfur powder river basin coals so as an environmentalist the question to me is how big is the risk from a climate standpoint Versus how big are the benefits from a local air pollution standpoint? Because both of those issues matter. If you're watching the press over the past couple days coming out of Beijing, they have had some of the worst air quality days in, in recorded history there. cost the country $200 billion a year. There's 750,000 premature deaths each year from air pollution. That's not CO2. That's not climate change. That's, uh, that's uh, sulfur dioxide and particulate matter. And so you have to weigh those things. And so it's important to figure out just how much will that U.S. coal export quantity change.
1: But, so but, but, Wyoming but, coal to China but, helps uh, L.A. But Bruce Nellis, do you what, agree?
2: Well, we're kind of missing the point here, which is we have a climate crisis. 2012 was the hottest year on record. And we are debating do we build out 20, 30, 20 or 30 years of infrastructure to enable the burning of more fossil fuels at the very time the scientists are saying – we need to shrink the consumption of fossil fuels. We in the U.S. have a tremendous opportunity and I would say a responsibility. We sit on the largest coal reserves in the world. We have 25% of all the coal in the entire globe. Much of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is also from us over the last 100 years. We have a tremendous opportunity to say to the rest of the world, we're going to finally do our part, lead by example, build more wind and solar, as we did last year, than we're building fossil fuels and leading by example, but we're also going to keep our coal underground and out of world markets. We are not going to enable the very behaviors that is causing hurricanes and a whole bunch of environmental problems around the globe. That's insanity. And whether it's one Pepsi or two Pepsi, you're still adding a lot of calories to a problem that's already out of control. So my point is simply, we're sort of missing the science. If the science is saying, as Jim Henson said in his report today, if we've got to cut 6% per year, the notion of dramatically escalating coal consumption out of the U.S. off land that belongs to you and I, these are federal lands, we're selling coal for a dollar a ton to the Chinese for 120 bucks a ton. There's something very wrong with this picture because we're essentially paying for our own demise. So, to me, that's the critical question. Are we going to enable our destruction or are we actually going to say, President Obama, we need some leadership here? The planet is calling out for help.
1: Question whether uh, markets and respond to uh, morals or respond to the, Yeah, Russ McFarlane?
3: Well, I wanted to. Uh, just pile on to what what Bruce was saying. The key issue is building out uh, the infrastructure for massive increase in fossil fuels and for drawing down these reserves that, if they're tapped, are going to lead to an unavoidable climate crisis, unavoidable crisis in terms of our oceans, all sorts of other vectors. And it's not just folks like Bruce saying that or folks like Bill McKibben or a prominent scientist like Jim Hansen. In, In the last couple months, groups like the uh, International Energy Agency, the World Bank, have in very, very stark terms said, if we actually build the infrastructure and develop all these reserves, it's going to be game over. So we have to be starting some places. And our feeling is we need to be starting with, with the reserves that we own, like the Powder River Basin, and in the communities where we have the most ability to control. Second, I do have to talk a little bit about the idea that Powder River Basin is coal is cleaner. It is less in sulfur dioxide, and that is, as Trevor was saying, a primary reason that it was turned to, mostly so that the power companies could avoid putting on controls. It has the same amount of carbon dioxide per BTU. Uh, It's huge in mercury, huge in other pollutants, which are also, there are a number of studies showing that the largest amounts of mercury and other air toxics coming to the west coast are actually coming from burning in China. And the kind of particulate pollution, which is the primary cause of the huge increase in respiratory diseases and other things that are crippling people in China, um, are, again, being contributed to directly, whether it's Powder River Basin coal or other coal that's being burned.
1: There was a report by an economist at Stanford, Frank Wolak, who says claims that actually exporting U.S. coal will raise the price and, therefore, actually reduce U.S. emissions because it will make coal more expensive and, and, and w- accelerate the switching to natural gas. Bruce Nillis, do you think that's true? Uh,
2: I think we already have a strategy to drive up the cost of coal, and that is simply beginning coal to pay its fair share. Look, if you and I took a bunch of rubble out of our backyard and dumped it into a stream into the bay, that would be a crime. If I'm in Appalachia and I blow the top of a mountain and put all that nasty mining waste into a stream, that's legal. Now, why is it legal? It's because the coal industry, through many years of lobbying, has carved out exception after exception to every single environmental law. What President Obama has been doing over the last four years with a little pushing, without a doubt, is to begin to say, you gotta pay your fair share. Let's level the playing field between all the fuels and let's have coal reduce its mercury pollution, stop filling in streams in Appalachia, and beginning to do its fair share. So that's one of the reasons you're seeing coal prices go up, because they're finally internalizing the cost. At the same time, wind and solar prices are plummeting, and that's why we're seeing record growth of wind and solar, particularly here in California.
1: Trevor Hauser, do you think that exports will accelerate the switching from coal to natural gas?
0: Uh, not by a lot. I think all else equal exporting coal will increase domestic prices but uh, the supply curve for coal in the U.S. is pretty flat, which means if you increase the amount produced in the Powder River Basin, it's not going to change the price much for, for coal from the Powder River Basin. But the implication of that on the international side is if you have a flat supply curve, so changes in price lead to large changes in supply, that the introduction of U.S. coal into international markets will mostly come at the expense of Australian coal or Indonesian coal or Mongolian coal. Um, so what are – I don't know what the upper-end estimates for West Coast coal exports are, 120 million tons maybe, the currently announced project? Um,
3: when currently announced projects would be as much as 140 million tons. There's one industry analyst who said that they expect uh, 350 million tons would be the, the total amount that the industry would want to really reach its strategies.
0: So let's take, like, 150 million tons in the announced project. Plans Just as a number uh, for the moment. So I think it's important to quantify just how big of a deal this is for the climate, because we have scarce political capital in this fight, and you have to choose which battles to wage. If we're talking about 150 million tons of U.S. coal exports going to China, even if all of that was additional. Right. even if all of that was consumed above the consumption of Australian coal, Indonesian coal, Mongolian coal. So I'm buying both the Pepsi and the Coke out of the vending machine. Right? Current Chinese coal consumption is about 2.5 billion tons uh, on path to 3 billion tons. Right. So that 150 million tons would be a fairly small increase in Chinese coal consumption and a relatively small increase in global coal consumption. Right. So it probably would be an increase in consumption to some extent and an increase in emissions, but in the scale of the problem we're talking about here, this is not the existential uh, issue uh, facing us. Let me
2: try it It, a different way to describe it. If we burned all that 150 million tons of coal, that's three times as much carbon dioxide as the entire state of California puts out with all 40 million people. That is a lot of additional carbon dioxide. And so that's important because there's a lot of great work going on here in California to demonstrate to the country here's how we can cut carbon. And for three years now, we've been cutting carbon here in the U.S., in, in, in California. To now say, oh, we don't care about three times as much as what's coming out of California, I think uh, I disagree.
3: And if I could slice it a different way, I've done some analysis showing that, you know, I think we all know in western states, our biggest emissions are typically driving. And so getting people out of their cars, electrifying vehicles, huge strategies. If we got everyone in every state – west of Minnesota, west of Texas, out of their car for a year, that would be wiped out by exporting this coal in terms of the carbon emissions. We've done some analysis indicating that this is a bigger issue than Keystone XL, which I'm sure many of you have been following in terms of the carbon emissions. And ultimately, we have to determine where we can be stopping, and we need to be stopping that with the coal we own, the coal that we're subsidizing to be burned, and the coal that we have the ability to stop the creation of the massive infrastructure to facilitate it's being burned.
1: Let's talk about some of the regional politics and economics of this. There's a lot of states that are off coal for the most part. California is. There's a few states, Wyoming, uh, Appalachia, that are very coal dependent. It's easy for us to say, well, yeah, you, you guys should suffer some burden because it doesn't affect us. So what's going to happen to the to the miners who are losing their job, to people in the coal industry? You're 50. What are you going to do? Get another job? That's real tough. Bruce Nillis.
2: So... Um, Ross mentioned the example in Oregon and Washington. We spent two years working to sh- put those two coal plants on a retirement schedule. It was very important to us. We do a lot of work with labor to demonstrate, look, we're, we want to make sure this is being done in a sustainable and a way that is good for both the community and the workers. So in both of those examples in Oregon and Washington, those coal plants are being retired over the next six to eight years, different schedule for each of the two, and there is a package of... Um, economic investments, a mixture of company investments and state investments that were critical to us to make sure that both the community and the workers are left whole at the end of the process, both with training and new investments in clean energy, but also making sure the community, which is getting some taxes right now from those coal plants, is made whole. So that is a very important issue to us, because at the end of the day, Sierra Club, we have members in every single state. We don't parachute in, fix a problem, and then leave. These are community members who care desperately about what happens in those states, and getting this right is something we spend much of everyday doing.
1: And are there former coal miners who have new jobs today in another industry?
2: I will concede that the issue of coal mining, particularly in Appalachia, is the toughest issue we have wrestled with, and here's why. If you're in uh, West Virginia today uh, and you turn on the radio, you will hear about Obama's war on coal, and it's 24-7, coal, 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 coal. The late Robert Byrd, Senator Robert Byrd, had the courage and the stature to stand up and say, you know, coal's been good for West Virginia for decades. But this coal is actually going away. And the truth is, says the Energy Information Agency, that coal in Appalachia is likely going to decrease by about 60% in the next four years. Regardless of what the Sierra Club does, because the, the seams are getting too deep and too expensive to get out of the ground. So they have to start planning for the future. And we are saying, let's start going. Let's start talking about investments in solar, investments in wind. Let's get West Virginia thinking about the future. And right now, there's no political leadership in that state to have that conversation. So we are struggling, I will concede, in, in West Virginia in particular, and it's because the coal industry has such a lock on politics that no one has the courage, after late Senator Robert Byrd left, and arguably Rockefeller a little, but now he's leaving too, to stand up to the coal industry, say, stop your scared tactics, and let's talk about the future of West Virginia that's a future beyond coal, but they're not ready to have that conversation yet.
3: And, and I think if we're talking about jobs and coal, we need to also focus on, first, coal is at near the bottom of any list of where investments will produce jobs, and specifically high-paying jobs. Uh, it's highly mechanized, both the mining and also the export and the other steps. So there's very few direct jobs that are created per millions of dollars of investment. Uh, It has had a spectacular record breaking union power and reducing the safety. It has also had a tremendous record of um, doing the kind of corporate manipulation that actually leaves many of these miners in places like Appalachia where the mines are played out completely vulnerable. Uh, the miners' union is now suing the two largest American coal companies, Arch and Peabody, for creating a shell company, outsourcing many years of liabilities, of pensions, um, worker benefits, environmental responsibilities into the shell company, and then having that company go bankrupt.
1: Regarding uh, job creation, I believe it's uh, jobs per million dollars of investment. There was a research report. It may have been from your uh, uh, website linked uh, Ross McFarlane. Sustainable forestry was number one. Crop agriculture, gas pipelines, transit, and livestock. So I was got kind of a little surprised to see gas pipelines, natural gas pipelines, in there as number three. So let's talk about natural gas. We haven't – you can't, it's hard to talk about coal and natural gas. They, they, they go together. Uh, you know, Bruce Nillis, does the Sierra Club think that natural gas is the is the future? Is it cleaner? Is a bridge fuel to the future?
2: Uh, we don't think it is. Let me just touch on the jobs. There's 150,000 people in the coal industry that is working in the mines and in the power plants. 150,000 total in the entire United States. And that's producing the largest share of our carbon dioxide emissions. We have 150,000 people a day working in the wind and solar industry. And they are just getting started, right? Even here in California, there's more people by far than in most of the rest of the Western states doing clean energy versus coal. So just a sense of scale, clean energy is already doing far more than the coal piece. Natural gas. We have learned a lot over the last couple of years in terms of um, natural gas has, yes, if you burn it in a power plant, about half the carbon dioxide emissions of coal, but it has a whole bunch of other problems that we are now finally realizing. It is, uh, it, is but fu- it is the last thing you want to do if you're actually trying to solve the climate crisis, and here's the problem. When you drill for gas and you transport it, you leak a lot of methane. Methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. And so the latest science are saying it is anywhere from 20 to 30, maybe as much as 50%, worse than we ever thought gas was because of the leakage of gas during the drilling and transportation process. In addition, there's a whole bunch of environmental issues associated with drilling and um, burning natural gas. A bunch of problems with communities who live in places where they are fracking the heck out of the area and you're seeing significant uh, contamination problems. So when we think about how are we transitioning to a clean energy economy our vision is let's go from coal to wind and solar let's go from coal to large investments in energy efficiency and showcase how to do it and not get by get stuck in the process with something that has a whole host of environmental problems
1: when you said you've learned a lot in the last couple of years it's interesting because it was just a couple of years ago that the, the beyond coal campaign Received what twenty-six million dollars from a natural gas company? Uh, was was that a mistake? Did you is that part of the learning process? Was that before you knew some of the impacts of natural gas?
2: Totally fair. It was.
1: Uh, Ross McFarlane, any thoughts on on natural gas?
3: Well, I agree with Bruce that there's that the key issue is to focus on leakage in, as well as, of course, all the other kinds of environmental issues that go with it. Natural gas is playing a pivotal role along with. Uh, the the pressure from communities, pressure from regulations in killing coal. And, you know, it's going to play that transition. But having it be a long-term portion of our energy supply is certainly not a place that we're supportive of moving in any significant way. And really emphasize the, the area of energy efficiency as being the number one thing that we here need to be continuing to double down on and that is a huge opportunity in developing economies around the world where we can be decarbonizing our economies and creating greater prosperity at the same time.
1: Ross McFarlane is a senior advisor with Climate Solutions at Environmental Group. Other guests today at Climate One are Trevor Hauser, a visiting fellow at the Peterson Institute, and Bruce Nillis, senior director of the Beyond Coal Campaign at the Sierra Club, I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Trevor Hauser, is natural gas a good bet for investors? You advise investors on, partly on, on banks and financial institutions on where to put their money. Is natural gas a good bet, low prices, stable supply? It's American, got some problems, but how are they viewing it?
0: I mean, in terms of uh, natural gas as a, uh, a solution to climate change, Uh, I disagree with Bruce a bit on the uh, what's called the methane leakage question, which is uh, how much methane, which is natural gas, uh, uncombusted, is released either when uh, shale gas wells are fracked or when they're transported in pipelines. This is a critical question in terms of just how climate-friendly or unfriendly natural gas is. Uh, There is very little... Good work done yet? Assessing on a national level what that looks like. There's a couple studies uh, that are that point to it being a bigger problem than we thought, and there's studies pointing the other way. So to be honest, we just don't know what that looks some like. Some of those yet.
1: Fu- studies are funded by industry, and some are funded by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration that came out recently on the high side. Right. Uh, but that can be managed with proper technology and oversight. So
0: that's the key to me is that it's not that that's not an intrinsic part of the problem. So the CO2 in coal is intrinsic in the coal. There's nothing you can do about it except carbon capture and sequestration, which is extremely expensive. Fugitive emissions from methane, that leakage, is something that you can address with proper regulation. So to me, it comes down to, yes, natural gas can be an important bridge fuel, provided there's adequate regulation to ensure that methane leakage is not a problem, to ensure that fracking is done in a way that's environmentally sustainable. I think probably the difference in my view on this versus Bruce's is that I don't live in California. I live in, uh, in, uh, in New York and spend a lot of time in oil and gas land. And while I would love to see us go right from coal to wind and solar, that is just not the political world we live in. When you're in a world where the president can't say climate change, you're not in a world where there's sufficient political appetite to replace coal-fired power plants with wind and solar. I wish we were in that world, but we're not in that world. So let's go, what to, natural- the re-
2: let's go to the real world. Texas has installed 10,000 megawatts of wind. They're not doing it because of climate change. They're doing it because it's good economics, right? So there are states that you would put in the gas sector but they're doing incredible things on clean energy. So they're
0: doing that because of a federal tax credit, right? Right. the PTC, that gives 2.1 cents per production kilowatt tax hour. tax credit, which is right. extended, extended for one credit. year. Okay. Right. So there's a taxpayer subsidy to win that enables it to deploy, right? Everything's subsidized. Okay. So in this case, that's what allows wind to deploy. So let's be fair. Every, oil and gas is subsidized. Sure. Uh, in Texas, I think the opportunity that natural gas provides is you have a state that – uh, produces a lot of natural gas, uh, is reliant on Powder River Basin coal imports. And uh, a friend of mine who works at UT Austin got a call from the governor's office a couple of years ago, and they understand the logic of that. How can we switch from this coal that we import from the Powder River Basin to natural gas that we produce within our state? Uh, you know, we're out of compliance with our with EPA regs. Uh, we just need to find a good way. Uh, to do that, now, unfortunately, uh, the governor had, uh, uh, Rick Perry had already crossed off the list most of the policy options that you would point to uh, as being not politically acceptable. Uh, but for a large swath of the country right now, some of the very same states that are coal producers are also emergent natural gas producers. And so it changes the political map of climate change policy in a useful way. So in Pennsylvania, right, uh, which is a very large coal producer, natural gas now employs more people in Pennsylvania than coal mining did. And so that stranglehold of the coal industry that you've had a hard time breaking in West Virginia, that's being broken in places like Pennsylvania because of natural gas. Mm
1: -hmm. And some people would argue that that low natural gas prices are making American industry competitive again, that it's helping helping the economy. Uh, and, uh, Trevor Hauser, you were a, a negotiator for the United States State Department at the Copenhagen Climate Summit in 2009. And if you had anticipated the trajectory of U.S. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions to 2013, what, what, what did you think would happen and what actually happened?
0: Uh, so today uh, U.S. emissions are about 13 percent below where they were in 2005. Uh, our pledge in Copenhagen was a 17% reduction by 2020. So the U.S. is within reach of its uh, climate commitment.
1: Without any cap-and-trade, any policy. Any cap and okay, trade. so we're stumbling and we got lucky. But right. why? Uh,
0: so it's been a mix of things. The largest single reason has been the recession. So that's not something as a politician I would want to be uh, showcasing. Uh, depends on
1: which politician you are. But, yeah. <laughs>
0: uh, uh, but a large share has been renewables and natural gas right? Uh, so renewables in the transport sector, renewables in uh, states like California with good state-level incentives uh, for renewable deployment, and the large switch from natu- coal to natural gas that we've seen over the past year or two.
1: And, and on natural gas, Ross McFarlane, some people want to export natural gas. Would people in the Northwest, Oregon, Washington, would you be opposed to exporting natural gas to Asia? A lot of people want to do that through British Columbia elsewhere?
3: It, there are very active opposition campaigns. Ironically, two years ago, there was a major push to build these large liquidified natural gas import facilities along the Columbia River and Coos Bay, other coastal communities. All of those sites, all of those developers have now shifted their focus to, no, we're going to build an export Turn facility. the pipes around. Just yeah. to, I think, try to show how volatile these markets are. And and a lot of experts are raising questions about how long-term and durable this, you know, price disparity is and uh, the likelihood of doing that. You know, we, we at Climate Solutions haven't camped out firmly um, in terms of this, other than strongly agreeing with Bruce that this isn't a long-term strategy for either our country, our region, or the globe. Um, and, and also agreeing with Trevor that we need to have strong controls, which we don't have currently. There's no way of being able to verify what the leakage rates are other than individual studies because the industry managed to get things deregulated. And, but that there are huge um, – there is huge opposition, and there will be huge opposition to any effort to build liquefied natural gas because of many groups who are concerned about you know, direct community
1: impacts. So, do you think that natural gas ought to be regulated at the state level, as it is now? Texas, some states have pretty good laws; other states, uh, it's wild and loosey-goosey. Uh, do you think it ought to be federal regulated or at the state level?
3: I'd say all of the above. I mean, it was under it was under uh, Vice President Cheney and his Energy Commission that was set up. Some of us remember back in 2001, 2002, that really rammed through the massive deregulation that natural gas wanted at the time and created the circumstances for the boom that we're seeing now. Now, the, the major sophisticated companies are saying, well, we can do this safely. We can do this with minimum leakage. But there aren't any circumstances or regulations or even transparency in place for any of us to know that they are, in fact, doing that or that the, the wildcat developers won't continue to do it in a very destructive way.
1: Bruce Nellis, uh, local versus uh, state regulation?
2: Uh, if we look at our history, the only thing that's actually worked to really level the playing field is when we have strong federal regulations. The notion that West Virginia is going to put in place state regulations and everything's going to be hunky-dory and that the people of West Virginia are going to have clean drinking water, we tried that once. It didn't work, right? So let's be honest about the experience we've had of 30 years of environmental regulation is we need strong federal laws that say everyone has a basic right to clean air and clean water, and states can go stronger, and we've always said states like California can lead and show us what's next, but we have to have minimum safeguards that say, regardless of what industrial activity you have, wherever you do it, there's some basic things that we as Americans are all entitled to, and the notion that we're going to say to the gas industry, oh, you can go do what you want and whatever deal you work out in West Virginia... It's a recipe for disaster.
1: But that's a tough uh, political proposition in an era when the Environmental Protection Agency is on defense and basically has a a moat around it just trying to maintain the gains they've had, protect the Clean Water Act, protect the Clean Air Act. Your new major regulations, that's a heavy lift for an EPA that's that's back on
2: its heels. Uh, I think if you ask Lisa Jackson whether she's been – She's been on offense for four years, and she passed through the strongest mercury regulations in our nation's history. She, before she left office a couple of weeks ago, she passed through a strong uh, increase in particulate matter standards. They pushed through two different standards on fuel efficiency standards. They're pretty aggressive and focused and achieving significant reductions. And when you mentioned how we've we been getting these climate reductions, actually the way we think about it at the Sierra Club is there's two ways things are happening. It's not in Congress. The notion of a grand bargain on climate change we realized back in 2009 we ran into the brick wall of the coal industry. They were simply too powerful. And I'll concede it here on stage that at 2009 we could not roll the coal industry. They have a lock on Congress, and Congress will do whatever the coal industry says. But there are two other very important places where you can make change. One is in the executive branch working with the president to get EPA to do its job, and the other is the state and local level, and that's where all the progress has been happening. So we have EPA and the White House passing regulations reducing carbon emissions from power plants, uh, and from cars, and a whole bunch of stuff going on at the state level, which is really changing and driving, I would argue, the carbon reductions that we are seeing. Uh, not enough, and certainly a 17 percent reduction of carbon by 2020 is nowhere near enough to what the science re- uh, requires, but we're beginning to put a, together a framework that shows us here's how we do it and let's accelerate our progress. Trevor, you how know, are, sorry, Ross, sorry.
3: So I was just going add in, despite some of the spinning that's going on, Polling and specific campaigns where this has issue shows that breathing, drinking, having healthy communities are actually surprisingly popular for most people um, and that people do draw those connections in ways. So, you know, when you get away from some of the rhetoric around war on coal or particular, um, you know, volatilized issues and just ask people about whether or not they think that we should have stronger or weaker environmental protections, very uniformly and not just in places like California or Washington, uh, people support having stronger protections.
1: We're going to uh, invite your participation and put a microphone up here and encourage you, uh, if you're on this side of the audience, please go through that door and the line forms with our producer, uh, Jane Ann, right there. Uh, We welcome your participation. That's what this is all about. uh, and invite you to come up with uh, one, one part, Question or comment? (laughs) If you'd like to read a sonnet, uh, I'll jump um,
3: jump in. No filibusters.
1: No no filibusters. Yeah, we have filibuster reform here. Uh, So until uh, that uh, gets going. We're talking about coal and clean energy at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Our guests are Trevor Hauser with the Rhodium Group, Ross McFarlane with Climate Solutions, and Bruce Nillis with the Sierra Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Trevor Hauser, let's get you in on that policy perspective. You were a former uh, diplomat with the State Department. Do you think the action going to be at the states? Is it going to be in Congress, executive branch? Where is it going to be policy-wise the next few years? I'm
0: I think it's going to be a combination. I mean, regulations coming out from the EPA are going to be important. State-level action is going to be very important. And there's always the prospect of I don't think that the prospect of economy-wide policy is completely dead. Uh, and I think that the uh that the event that might catalyze that policy is uh is the budget situation uh that we face. Uh you know, reasonable adults would agree that we're not gonna address the debt just through tax cuts uh, or through tax increases, we're not gonna address the debt just through spending cuts. That there's gonna be some combination of increase in revenue and some combination of reduction in spending that's required. If you talk about something like a carbon tax in isolation and you put it to the American people and say, would you support a carbon tax? Very few people are going to support it, right? Because who likes taxes? If you start talking about a carbon tax relative to other sources of revenue, like raising the Medicare and Social Security retirement age to 68 or imposing a 1% uh, tax on millionaires, those types of things give you the same amount of revenue that a carbon tax would. Suddenly, a carbon tax starts to look a little bit more attractive. And uh, if the European experience over the past few years has taught us anything, it's that when you hit a fiscal crisis, what seemed politically impossible yesterday seems politically inevitable today. And so I think, given our uh, fairly precarious fiscal position going forward, uh, that it's dangerous to rule out some fairly aggressive national policy.
1: And it has a lot of support among some very conservative circles who like the idea of taxing bad things, coal, uh, fossil fuels and not taxing good things, jobs, etc. So it may have some legs. Let's have our audience question. Welcome, sir.
2: Welcome, Thanks. Yes. Um, I'm Gavin Purchase from the Climate Works Foundation. Uh, questions really
3: to
0: Bruce, but to all of you. We've got a sixth of the coal fleet already. The
2: current regulations that are in place make maybe a third vulnerable that we can get offline by 2020. How do you get the rest? So to me um, – The economics of coal changing in the last couple of years has been one of the most exciting things in the decade I've been doing this work. We are seeing wind development in a state like South Dakota, which everyone appropriately thinks of as a very red state, and there's not a lot of discussion at the state legislature about solving climate crisis. Today, there are about 30 percent wind power. Just quietly going about building wind turbines, adding in a ton of clean energy – And to me, when I think about why does that happen, yes, there's subsidies for wind, but there's also subsidies for everything else, but it's also because the economics of the alternatives are worse. And as we know here in California, being on the cutting edge of clean energy technology, all those prices of wind and solar are coming down. LED light bulbs are coming down. All the good stuff is coming down. The price of coal is going up. A variable is the price of natural gas. I think anyone will bet at some point it's going to go up. And so the The question is, how do we position ourselves in the next couple of years getting the first third of the coal fleet offline, which is what we are trying to do by 2015, and then really set it up so the rest of those coal plants, which are now fully internalizing all the costs of environmental compliance, uh, are simply being outcompeted in the market space because clean energy is coming in much cheaper and essentially disrupting that old way of doing business because it's too expensive.
1: Michael Bloomberg gave the Sierra Club $50 million to fight coal. Why did did he do that?
2: Um, That was a nice grant. (laughs) <laughs> um, uh, it was Better than that natural gas one, yes. Um, so, Mayor Bloomberg, as you know, has been fighting a bunch of things, including um, large sodas, but really cares about public health and has been, like us, has been very frustrated at Congress not addressing what are what his, his views as a moderate Republican or as independent. He says, these are things we as Americans can all agree on. And so he's been working on guns, on tobacco. He's been willing to pick fights with some very powerful industries. He came to us, or we actually went to him a couple years back and said, look, we have a very measurable human health crisis associated with coal mining, burning, and ash disposal. We can tell you that there's 13,000 people a year dying. There's about a million people ending up in the emergency rooms from asthma attacks. There's all these measurable health consequences of our current reliance on coal. About 100 million Americans in cities where it's unsafe to breathe, a lot of it coming from coal. We have a campaign that we believe we can get a third of the coal fleet retired rest of it to clean up its act in the interim and ultimately get it all retired. And he put us through a very rigorous process um, uh, with some of his staff to demonstrate how we could do this, uh, literally working state by state, and he made a big bet on us uh, two years ago to say, I'll give you a four-year grant to um, go forth and see if you can, in fact, do it. And I'm delighted to say we're almost halfway there uh, two years in.
1: Let's have our next audience question. You're welcome. Thank you very much for an interesting evening. Gary Lachow from the Loma Prieta chapter of the Sierra Club. Uh, (coughs) Carbon soot has been uh, described in what actually today was announced in an article as a major cause of uh, climate change. I wonder if you could comment on what fraction of that might be coming from coal. Is that black carbon? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't
0: know the exact numbers for black carbon. I,
3: I don't know the exact numbers either, but... Um, Soot, black carbon, is a, you know, significant uh, outcome of coal plants, especially the kind of relatively Ex- uncontrolled.
1: what it is and why it matters. Well, it, it's,
3: you know, it's essentially particulate matter uh, that is formed from incomplete combustion um, of coal and other things. There's also a large amount coming from diesel. So, uh, you know, the transporting of this coal huge distances will be contributing to that.
1: And it can yeah. land on ice fields. It s- 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 attracts heat, which accelerates the melting.
3: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so these are all just, you know, cumulative kinds of impacts on top of the basic carbon dioxide impacts, which are overwhelming in themselves.
1: Have our next question. Welcome.
2: I'm Amanda Joy Ravenhill. I teach at the Presidio Graduate School here in uh, San Francisco. And I'm curious about what you find to be the most promising technologies to draw down carbon from the atmosphere.
1: Trevor Hauser?
0: Uh, Trees. Yeah. (laughs) And not cutting them down.
1: (laughs) Planting more of them?
2: Uh, Yeah, planting more of them. Absolutely. Who's
1: Harvesting Harvesting coal plants. Harvesting coal plants?
2: Um, I was being facetious, but, I mean, there's a ton of very exciting work going on, forest being one, restoring prairie soils. I mean, there's a bunch of things to help from a landscape level really pull carbon out of the atmosphere.
1: There was a big article recently about uh, synthetic artificial photosynthesis technology (coughs) doing that sort of thing.
3: We we at Climate Solutions are working on an exciting initiative called the Northwest Biocarbon Initiative, which is basically how we can move beyond what we need to be doing in terms of stopping carbon emissions, declining carbon emissions, but then figuring out how we can create healthy ecosystems. I'd agree The trees, farming, sustainable practices are still the, the key ways to be able to do that, and we've got to be able to harness all those kinds of techniques in both urban
2: and rural environments. And let me just add why it's important. Pretty According to the best science, um, we essentially need to be done with fossil fuels sometime in the next 20, 25 years and then be negative, mm-hmm. negative carbon, and the question is how to get there. And there's a lot of very exciting ideas, um, as was just described, about how you better manage the landscape so that it's absorbing uh, carbon out of the atmosphere. But essentially, we need to stop making the problem worse in the next uh, couple decades and then actually begin to pull more carbon out of the atmosphere, which is very exciting work.
1: And your confidence is going to happen?
2: We have to make it happen, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yes, sir, welcome. Hi, thanks for a very interesting discussion. My name's Nate Aiden. I'm with the World Resources Institute in Washington. As everyone here knows, the EU has been pretty far ahead of the U.S. in climate policy and energy policy overall. However, for the past couple of years, uh, coal has been skyrocketing there. This year, it's been increasing at an annualized rate of about 50% in some countries. Um, Also, the largest, you know, everyone likes to talk about U.S. exports to China, but actually the largest export destination for U.S. coal is the Netherlands for 2012 and 2011. I'm wondering if the panelists could comment on... What went wrong in the EU and what's going on there? Because the EU ETS, the idea was that when this happens, the price of carbon would go up, but it's been very low for the past year regardless of rising coal use. So
1: ETS being a, a carbon market in, in Europe, what's, what's wrong with Europe? Coal, and this is a very good point, thank you, coal is really surging uh, internationally, maybe on its uh, – on its knees in the United States, but internationally it's a different story. Bruce, knows?
2: I would urge you to dig below that story because there's actually a couple of fascinating things going on. So I actually grew up in England, and the story was England's increasing its coal use, which is in part was true because gas prices were up, but it was also because they have a rule in Europe which is to phase out their coal plants, and they had a certain amount of hours in which to operate before they had to retire. And they're essentially, over the last two years, been running them full out to use those hours up and now they're shutting them down. So I think what's important in all this is what's the trend? And the trend is not, at least long-term, that coal use is going to go up in Europe. It's actually going down. Now, Eastern Europe is a different story, but at least in the Western Europe part, mm. indications are that it's just a short-term phenomenon because of the way they set up the program that they're running these coal plants before they ultimately shut them down. But wasn't
1: there also some uh, things in Germany went from nuclear, and they went to coal after they shut down nuclear pretty fast after Fukushima, and coal replaced it?
0: Yeah. Yeah primarily you can blame the Greeks. I mean, it's, you have a cap-and-trade system, which means you set a cap for overall emissions, and then, you know, if uh, emissions are below the cap, then you can burn whatever you want. From an economist standpoint, that's fine. You should be setting your cap at where you want emissions to be, and then you let the market determine what's profitable and burn. So if the bottom falls out of the economy and there's just less demand for energy, then you meet the cap pretty easy, and that's what's happening in the EU ETS right now. It's just that emissions don't cost a lot, in the market, uh, because uh, because of weak demand for uh, for energy.
3: I'd only add I oh, spent so a cool. lot of time reading coal industry publications, and even the very folks who are very bullish on coal. See the EU growth as being a short-term phenomenon for the reasons that
1: both Trevor and Bruce were describing let have our next question. Yes, welcome.
2: Great, thank you. Hi, thank you for a wonderful discussion. Um, my name is Shauna Rappaport. I'm curious just about your perspectives in terms of um, cap and trade versus the increasingly discussed fee and dividend, um, especially in relation to the policy element of this evening's discussion. Curious about your perspectives on both.
1: We'd like to tackle that and define what fee and dividend is. <laughs> uh, Jim Hansen was was recently and he said he, he uh, I guess he was on he's the main advocate of fee and dividend and I guess David Letterman asked him uh, who's a meteorologist and really gets climate change and like, what do people American people need to understand and he said they need to understand the difference between cap and trade and fee and dividend and Letterman just goes what that going to happen so please define what you, you,
3: you know, know. Our, our, I'm not going to define any of this our primary <laughs> goal on this is get her done we need to start putting. A significant and escalating price on carbon. We need to be putting a cap on carbon. We, you know, we personally have been more in favor of of the cap um, over the years. We put less focus on the trade, but you know that that can be an, an economically efficient model to get things done. But uh, we want to be focusing on what's politically feasible to both address this overwhelming climate crisis, but also to provide revenues for. Um, some of the key fiscal issues that we're all facing, we just absolutely need to be doing that. Um, and we can all set up circular firing squads or dance around the head of a pin and say, no, it should be this way, that way. I think we need to all be getting common cause to get this done. But
1: well, there's a big difference. Between, uh, Trevor Hauser, you talked about uh, carbon tax being part of a fiscal solution, which means more money coming into the government. Right. Fee and dividend is the money comes into the government, it's revenue neutral, and it goes back to the people. It doesn't feed big government, which includes, which may engender some political support. So I'd like to hear your take on fee and dividend versus uh, other revenue mechanisms that bring money into the government.
0: Yeah, I mean, the basic question is, are you taking the revenue that's being generated from a program. And you can generate revenue from a cap-and-trade program. You can generate revenue from a fee-and-dividend program. You can generate it from a carbon
1: tax. And California's doing that. Right.
0: You've got three options with that revenue. You can either give it to the companies that are impacted to offset the cost to them. That's what would have happened with most of the revenue under the Mm Waxman-Markey bill, that it would have been given back to power-generating companies in the hopes that they use that revenue to keep electricity prices from rising. You can take the revenue and use it to pay down the debt, or you can take the revenue and use it to, uh, to offset other taxes or to give it directly back to the people, and that's basically the same thing. So whether you use that specific revenue from a carbon tax to reduce the corporate income tax or you give it back to people directly, uh, uh, the distributional impact of that is a little bit different, but the concept uh, is the same. At a national level, I think there's almost no prospect for cap-and-trade in uh, the foreseeable future. It is – you cannot overstate how politically toxic that particular mechanism has become. Uh, I think that there is much more prospect for a carbon tax or fee and dividend-like scheme where the revenue is used for – other uh, priorities, other fiscal priorities.
1: And that's happened in British Columbia where they put in a a, a tax, and it's offset some other taxes, and people are getting money back. Bruce Bruce Millis?
2: Well, it's interesting you mentioned British Columbia because one of the great models to us is the sister state uh, of Ontario, which uh, just yesterday announced it was shutting uh, two of its last five coal plants. It wasn't through any fancy cap-and-trade or fee-and-dividend or carbon tax. It was good old-fashioned regulation that said – we, the state of Ontario, we both do health care. They have state-subsidized health care. Plus, we provide energy for our people, electricity. We did the math. It makes no sense to burn coal and then have to pay to get people well from getting sick. Let's do the math, and we're going to shut down all the five coal plants over the next five years. And that's what they did. And it was very orderly, and they're building out clean energy. And it's sort of a rational decision-making process that says we're going to shut them down through regulation. And that is a very clean and efficient way to do it.
1: And the United States federal government has parts of the government that are charged with uh, getting money from leasing public lands for fossil fuel extraction uh, and other parts of the government that are charged with uh, addressing the consequences of doing that. So let's talk about the leasing aspect and how you think that's subsidized uh, very cheaply. The U.S. taxpayers are not getting a good deal.
2: Well, so this is one of the um, things that's really bubbled up over the last 12 months, which is most of the coal in the U.S. comes off of federal land, land that you and I own in Wyoming and Montana. Uh, it's leased by the Bureau of Land Management, uh, out of the federal government. And it's been run with this most bizarre corrupt process where essentially there's no bidding. It's, it has all the coal things, has anything been touched by the coal industry? They've essentially gutted any requirements for any open bidding and they're essentially getting coal for rock bottom prices of around a dollar a ton. Uh, And that's land that belongs to you and I. And so the question we have, whether it's coal or the oil and gas drilling uh, that we are calling on the president to ask is, is this the vision that we in America have, which is we're selling off our public lands for the coal industry to make a quick buck to then ship to China to accelerate climate change? That's that's not the vision that we had when we elected you, and we need him to pay attention and start to demand, let's reform this insane process that's uh, having us give away uh, coal and then ending up frying the planet.
1: Well, how good of a job do you think President Obama has done in the first term on, uh, on climate change? He came in saying he was going to you know, heal the planet, et cetera. Has he delivered?
2: Uh, I think we gave him uh, close to outstanding marks. When you look at what he did on investments in, uh, during the stimulus in terms of investments in energy efficiency and clean energy, and he appropriately says during his four years we doubled the amount of clean energy installed in the United States, which is true, um, so we had the largest investment in wind and solar ever uh, over the last four years. Under the leadership of Lisa Jackson at the behest of the president, we also did two rounds of fuel efficiency standards for cars and began to put in place a regulatory system to regulate carbon from coal-fired power plants and natural gas power plants, the first ever in the country. So from a carbon perspective, doing what the president can within his executive powers – Um, we think he did a pretty good job in terms of really beginning to lay the groundwork for how do we get there. Now, Congress needs to do its fair share, and that is a whole separate problem. Um, But in terms of what the president did in his four years, it's a good foundation. Yesterday, or a couple days ago, we laid out a bold vision for the second term uh, of a whole suite of things the president can do to really build on what he did in the first term to really accelerate and build on the gains of uh, what we accomplished in the last four years.
1: Trevor Hauser, would you agree? marks.
0: I will recuse – having worked for the administration, I will recuse myself from evaluating <laughs> its performance.
1: We'll let that's uh, – okay. Ross McFarlane?
0: I, I would agree. Uh,
3: the, uh, but there's far more that the president needs to be doing moving forward, and that's what we're going to be looking to hold him accountable for. I mean, I think any leader says, look, you know, I want to be doing these things. Now make me do it. Um, and we all need to be doing that, certainly around – the building out of infrastructure for whether it's fossil fuel exports, things like the Keystone XL, which are going to tap into these huge re- reserves, reforming these leasing or royalty practices so that we as the taxpayers aren't getting fleeced by these companies who are trying to profit from these schemes, um, making the kinds of strong appointments that are going to follow up with the leadership that Lisa Jackson has had at EPA and ensure we got equally strong leaders in places like the interior, um, which are going to be critical for this, are all things that we're going to be looking to do. Uh, but, uh, you know, we need to be having that kind of leadership moving forward if we're going to turn this climate crisis around.
1: Let's uh, wrap up, and I want to ask you individually about what you've done personally to reduce your own carbon footprint <laughs> and what you might do in, in 2013. We'll go this way. Ross McFarlane.
3: Well, let me say a good thing and bad thing. I, uh, I, I do have a – I just installed solar panels. And they're powering a plug-in Prius in my driveway, which I'm very excited about. And actually, the economics on both of those things are phenomenal. The bad thing is I'm actually, on a different project, flying around the globe a huge amount, trying to work with aviation leaders who are looking to create low-carbon fuels. I figure that part of my carbon footprint is an investment in a low-carbon future, but it's still a risky bet.
1: And and what you're going to do in the future, other than stopping flying? Uh, What's your, next, uh, what's your next thing?
0: <laughs>
3: Walk more, bicycle more.
1: Yeah, and thanks for flying here today, by the way. Um, <laughs> Trevor Hauser?
0: Uh, I think, unfortunately, I'm moving in the wrong direction because I'm moving from New York City to California this summer. So I'm going from no car, 900 square feet of cogeneration apartment building to I don't know how many cars you have here in California each. It seems like it's seven it, or it's eight. It's a law
1: that we have five each, <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, so I, I'm not, I'm not going in the right direction.
1: Uh, but it, moving to California is a good
2: thing. Bruce, know So I, I moved to California three months ago, and uh, after four years of car-free living, I bought my first car, my first new car ever, and um, uh, did a lot of shopping around about the electric choices and ended up on the plug-in Prius. And to me, uh, it still obviously has a fair amount of gasoline, but to me, it was the notion of driving around the East Bay with no, nothing but electricity and then thinking about how California is on the track to have, at some point, if we push hard enough, 100% clean energy... That, to me, is enormously exciting. So even though I spend my days working to shut down coal plants, the transportation sector and the uh, excitement of having an electric car, um, to me, is there's a lot of promise there.
1: Uh, I'm not sure I can let this by. A, a plug-in Prius It's not quite an electric car, so why do not you guys go all the way to electric?
2: Um, the thought was um, because if you have a full electric, because we only have one car, yeah. if you have a full electric, then you may want to go to Tahoe and go skiing. And you can't get there. And how many, and back?
1: And how many times a year does that happen? I've been once. <laughs> okay. Ross McFarlane?
2: You
3: know, it's, it's actually primarily my wife's car. I Ooh. my my wife's uh, <laughs> car. No, 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 no. And and her she, she she goes to Olympia once a week, which is outside the range of a pure electric.
1: Uh, once a week. That's a different story. It's interesting. Some of the electric car companies are talking about bundling car rentals mm-hmm. with that. So that to address that kind of, uh, you know, you buy yeah. for the 90%, 90, 95% of the usage, and you sort of rent for that 5% usage, that that uh, dreamy, fictional trip to Tahoe once or twice a year where everybody likes to think that they do with their SUV. And so they, they're thinking about making that really easy. Some EV owners also swap with their neighbors yeah. and say, well, okay, I'll, can I have your, your SUV for the weekend, and you can have my leave? And, and they do that. We've had people here do that, which sometimes is really interesting. We're doing an event here uh, coming up pretty soon about the sharing economy that will address some of that. So I'd like to thank Trevor Hauser, partner with the Rhodium Group, and a visiting fellow at the Peter Institute. We've also been hearing from Ross McFarlane, Senior Advisor at Climate Solutions, and Bruce Nillis, Senior Director of the Beyond Coal Campaign at the Sierra Club, for talking about clean energy and coal here today at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming.